We're going to be in Psalm 40 this morning. So if you want to turn there. I'll read this in its entirety. And then we can, uh, we can go from there. As you're, as you're turning there too, I will say as well, anyone I mentioned that I was heading to Clarksburg uh, from Louisville, I was overwhelmed with people who communicated hugs we should be giving. And, and I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, I don't, I don't know these people. Do you realize how awkward it would be to hug someone you don't know? Um, you could get yourself in some trouble. So just know that uh, everyone on the ground in Louisville, um, they, they call you their dearest friends. And they're, they're so thrilled we're here. Uh, hopefully you don't regret having us. <laughs> Psalm 40. My help and my deliverer. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock. Making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. But you've given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I will delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As you know, O Lord, you will not, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness, you will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. There are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. 
You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading and the hearing of His Word. As Devin mentioned, we were at the pastor's conference this last week, and Jared Mellinger preached a powerful message on justice, um, which I would encourage anyone to um, go online and listen to. But he, he shared an illustration at one point, and I'm, I'm going to bring about, but not for the same purposes, but there, there was a baseball player, or a, a baseball fan at the Cubs Stadium, July of this year, um, who was villainized by a misunderstanding. This man had, had gone to a Cubs game with his wife for their anniversary, and someone caught a video of, of a ball being tossed over the wall, and a young boy in, in the robe in front of him with a baseball glove going to retrieve the ball, and the man reaches under the chair and grabs the ball and hands it to his wife behind him. And the video went viral of this horrific man who would steal a baseball from this young child. And it was so bad that this man confessed later he was afraid to leave his hotel room for fear of his life. The title, uh, when CBS picked it up, was called Viral Video of Man Taking Baseball. Meant for Kid only shows part of the story. And as the story, the real story, came to be known, um, this man had actually already given this young boy two baseballs. And he was gathering a few baseballs. I don't know if he worked out a deal with the outfielder and he was just pitching them over as he was catching them. Uh, somehow he was gathering a number of balls. He had given a few to the, to the little boy already. And he was, he was gathering a few for his wife and for some friends. And he was totally misrepresented, totally villainized in the public square by social media. Because they only saw part of the story. And, and so as we look into Psalm 40, I don't want us to miss the bigger story. Psalm 40 is the, at the end of the first book of the Psalms. The, the Psalms are broken into five different books. Uh, the first book of um, Psalms is passes from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 41. So we are one chapter away from the conclusion of this first book. And this first book has a specific focus. I uh, pick up a lot of this from uh, a man, if you're a reader, his name is um, O. Palmer Robertson. He wrote a book called The Flow of the Psalms. That he, he makes an argument, a very compelling argument, um, that the, the, the Psalms have structure, that they're, they're communicating divine intent of, of God's Messiah and the ultimate consummation in the end. And so this first book is all about the confrontation of God's enemies. From the very beginning, we, we see that God is going to establish a king, and this king is going to, to, to thwart any plan God's enemies have to, to, to hinder God's ability to save His people. And this picks up in... in Chapter 1 and 2 very clearly, and that picture carries throughout this first book. And so you have in, the, in chapter 1 this, this blessed man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, but he delights in the law of the Lord. 
And on the Lord's law, he meditates day and night. He's a, he's a man of God's word. He's a man who, who, who follows God's leading. And this man is God's king that we see in chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth who set themselves up and the rulers who take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed one saying, let us break our bonds. Verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. And he goes on to talk about how he's going to establish his king. Verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell the decree, let the Lord say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And we see in verse 10 through 12, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in your way. And He ends by saying, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And so this great King God would send would be a King who who lives by the law of the Lord. And as you follow through this first book of the Psalms in chapters 18 and 19, you begin to see that this King is David. At least initially. You see the subheading in chapter 18. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of his enemies, all of his enemies, and from the hand of Saul. That was a previous king who lost his dynasty. And now God establishes his covenant with David. So David now sees that this king is attached to him as a representative. And so it's not, uh, it's obvious then why chapter 19, David begins to talk about the law of the Lord and how beautiful it is. Because he's this king who's going to uphold this law. He says in in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. It's sure, making the wise simple. It's right, rejoicing the heart. It's pure, enlightening the eyes. And on and on and on he goes. It's sweet as honey. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. And so David is, is now positioning himself. He sees himself in the position of God's king to carry this covenant forward and to obey the word of the Lord. And, and God is going to use the king to conquer all of God's enemies. And, and Psalm 18 and 19 are followed by a number of royal psalms of, of God the king as our shepherd. The great messianic psalm, Psalm 22, that Jesus quotes at his, at his uh, crucifixion. Many, many, many psalms that come. And, and then, but what you begin to see as the story unfolds is, is, is even though God's king is supposed to confront God's enemies and ultimately rule and reign, there's some, some dynamics that change or seemingly change. There's a question. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? And so the following Psalms, particularly in, in, the, in, in the later chapters, chapters uh, 30, uh, 34 through 37, David begins to articulate that, that there, there's 
There's a final day that's coming when God's king will put everything right. And there's a, there's a seeming reality now that, that may contradict this, but, but it's, it's those who are faithful, those who look to Yahweh for their deliverance that will ultimately find satisfaction. And so you see these, like, for example, in chapter 34, verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver him out of them all. And he's encouraging the congregation that, yes, you're right, there are afflictions. We cannot deny the circumstances we find ourselves in, and yet God will deliver. In this whole section of chapters 34 to 37, you could call uh, innocent suffering. Why do the enemies plot, and why do the innocent suffer? Why do the righteous, why are the righteous forsaken, and why do the wicked prosper? And on and on you could go in chapters 35, uh, verses 17 to 19. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng. I will praise you. Let them not rejoice over me, verse 19, who are wrongfully my foes. I've done nothing wrong and these people are coming after me. Deliver me from evil. And, and these prayers ramp up where David himself, though he was encouraging people to have faith, now finds himself asking questions like, How long, O Lord, will you forsake me? How long will you withhold your ear from me? I'm an innocent man who's suffering. Your people are innocent and they are suffering. And then we find this transition where we find ourselves in Psalm 40. That will end out this book one. Where God finally shows up. There's a, there's a waiting for the Lord that David had. And, and, and God has inclined his ear to David and he's heard David's cry. See that in verse 1. There's this, this earnest waiting. Waiting patiently is not very, uh, a very accurate way to translate that. It's waiting I waited. There was an earnestness. I wanted the Lord to show up. I didn't know when He'd show up. I needed Him to show up. And He showed up. And what He did when He showed up, He drew me up from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog. And He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps Secure. And the imagery here, you can see this in Jeremiah 38, is in Old Testament times, if they had a prisoner, if they wanted to, to, to punish someone and kill them, they would throw them in an empty well. And at the bottom of the well where the water was, there would be this, this mucky clay. And the more you moved around to try to find your footing, the slicker everything got. And there was no hope of getting out. And this imagery here is of David's enemies surrounding him and there's no way of escape. He's, he's, he's facing imminent death and God shows up and he rescues him. He, he plants his feet on a rock. This imagery here is not just, I found a strong rock in the bottom of the well. It's, I have put you on a high place out of the reach of your enemies. And it's been my hand to guide you there in safety so that you're, you don't slip along the way. And he says in verse 3, And you've put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. 
Here we find, as we'll see, that David realized some things that Saul failed to see. Of trusting God. Of taking God at His word. Of listening to the Lord and responding in obedience to Yahweh. And Saul lost the kingship. And David is here saying, I waited, I waited. It was, it was trying and it was difficult. But God shows up and He gives me a song. And He wants to tell it to the congregation. He has a, he's got a new song in his mouth. And, and you find throughout the scriptures that when something mighty happens, a mighty act like the Exodus, a song emerges. It's a way we, we capture a moment that's special, salvific, saving, that we can't express in just prose. It, it, it's too sacred to, to capture in our normal way of explaining things. It, it needs to be preserved in a different way. And, and it needs to be shouted from the mountaintops. It's a, I, I have five kids, so uh, we have seen all the Despicable Me movies. And I thought it was cute. And Despicable Me too. Uh, Agnes is going to do a presentation for Mother's Day. And so she's wanting to go over this presentation with Gru, who's her stepfather, who she was adopted her. And uh, she stands before him, and uh, she she says this little poem that she that she made, um, and it, it's uh, a bit stoic. She says um, she just stands there. She kisses my boobies. She braids my hair. We love mothers everywhere. And, uh, and Gru said, oh, that's nice. Let's uh, maybe try that again with a little teensy bit less like a zombie. <laughs> Where it's just, uh, 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 just expressionless. You know, we love moms. They braid our hairs and help our boobies. And, and God's not like that. He doesn't want us having these dead testimonies of His saving work. And, and David knows, I've been delivered. I've been redeemed. I have held God at His word and He's shown Himself faithful. And he goes on to say, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Notice he doesn't say many will hear and fear. They're not hearing the song. They're seeing what God has done. God has done a work. He's acted in history to redeem his people from their enemies. And, and they're going to put their trust in Yahweh. And so he goes on to say, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Yahweh is the one who saves he will deliver from your enemies. And he goes on to say, You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds, your thoughts toward us. None compare with you. I will proclaim them and I will tell them. Yet there are more that can be told. These are the saving acts of God. These wondrous deeds are the deeds of God's deliverance. On and on you see through the Psalms these mighty deeds. These mighty deeds of creation. Protection, the giving of the law, the rescue through the Red Sea, stilling of the storms. These are the wonderful things. And, and, and Psalm 72 even says that it is only God who does these wonderful things. Anyone else we see here um, is following a lie, verse 4. Those who go astray after a lie. Yahweh's the one who saves. And we see this glorious intervention 
and this wonderful deed and this song to be sung. And then David says this in verses 6 to 8, In sacrifices and offerings, uh, you have not delighted, but you've opened my ear. Burn offering, sin offering, you've not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. David discovered something about God's will. That it's not about the external practice of the offerings. It's an obedient heart to God's word. That will take God at his word. That will trust God in his word. And this was the failure of Saul. If you remember um, in 1 Samuel 15. Saul is told by Samuel to, to take out Amalek and the Am- Amalekites because Amalek treated God's people poorly when they came out of Egypt. And it was, it was the reckoning day where God would show his judgment to Amalek and Saul goes and, and he's to take everyone out, all livestock and the king, and he keeps the king and all the livestock and everybody else dies. And he justifies it before Samuel by saying, well, I kept these so that I could give offerings to the Lord. Samuel said, you fool. It's not sacrifices that God desires. It's a heart to do His will. And because you've done this, you have forfeited your kingship. And someone else will rule. And and David becomes king. And and so this is very, very... um, This is a very intimate reality for David. This was was what brought him into kingship. And he learns this lesson of trusting the Lord. That it's not the sacrifices. It's not the externals. It's it's to do your will, O God. My son, we, we took a trip before we came to the PC this summer to all the national, a lot of the national parks in the United States. And we went through Yellowstone. We love Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We did our, our honeymoon there. And uh, that's a place we frequent. Well, we went up through Yellowstone and we decided we would stop by um, Old Faithful. And we're walking through the parking lot and my boys are chasing birds. There's these, I think they were crows. They might have been ducks, but they were big and slow. And my kids thought they could get up to them. So that the boys were running through the parking lot and I'm trying to gather them in because we saw that the geyser's going off and it doesn't go off but every four hours or so. So um, trying to get them all together. We got five of them, so it's a bit of a challenge. And we're going through the parking lot. And as I'm trying to gather some kids, I hear my wife yell to my four-year-old named Liam. I hear her yelling. And you just know when you've lived with someone for 15 years, when, when their voice is different than normal. And I knew something was wrong. And I look over and Liam is running between two parked cars and there's a a Ford Expedition barreling down the parking lot. And I look and I see Liam and I cry out, Liam! And he turns around to see me with a big smile, but he keeps running. And this expedition does not see him. And I yell out, Liam! And he stops and he is literally inches away from this car that did not see him, comes past him, the rearview mirror just passes over his head and about halfway past my child, this car sees him and slams on brakes. 
And, and in those moments, you just grab your kid and you just communicate how much you love them. And it's a father saying, obedience to my word is greater than sacrifice. There's no apology you, you could give me that would be more important than you, you being safe. And God's law was to make the king safe. And in Deuteronomy 17, the, the king was called to write the, the, the um, Pentateuch on a scroll and to study it day and night. To preserve the king. To give long life to the king. And, they, and Saul had forfeited this blessing by disobeying the law of the Lord. And this is a lesson David learns. He says it's not about the sacrifices ultimately. Those are important. But not at the expense of obedience. And he says God's opened my ear to this. God's given me revelation to this. I understand this more than I ever have. And so he tells this glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. And he does not restrain his lips. He does not hide the deliverance of God in his heart. He says, I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've concealed your steadfast love. I've not concealed your steadfast love and faithfulness. From the great congregation. But then look what happens. He turns and he says. Since I've not withheld my testimony. Lord. Don't withhold your mercy from me. Because there's something that. That we see here. A turn of events. We, we've come out of a section in book one. Of the, the innocent suffering. But now we get a little more insight. Of, of, of a condition of David's heart. Verse 12, he says, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities, my sin, has overtaken me. I cannot see. It's the same imagery of being surrounded by enemies. It's as if my sin is surrounding me, and I'm back in this pit, and I'm in despair, and I can't see. There's more than the hairs on my head if you were to count my sin, and my heart fails me. And David here realizes that it's not the enemies outside that are his problem. It's the enemy within. His indwelling sin. And so he cries out to this God, this, this great deliverer, Yahweh, because he's delivered him in the past. And he says in verse 13, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste to help me. He goes on to petition him. But may all, verse 16, who seek you rejoice and be glad. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. What David learns what David has revealed to him as he in, writes this inspired word. What he seeks to communicate to God's people is that he's not ultimately this king. That he may succeed where Saul fails. But he as God's king still failed. 
And what he found that even the best men are men at best. And he fell, fall, he fell far short of his calling. And I believe as, as David's writing this, he actually has a greater revelation of what's going on. I, I believe that because of how the book's put together. Book one, this is, this is the next to the last chapter of book one. And he's revealing to his audience that he's not the one. There's another to come from his line who will have this this throne forever. And the way the book ends in chapter 41. Remember the nation scoffing and wanting to be put off in chapter 2. These are the enemies that say in verse 8 of chapter 41. They say uh, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again where he lies. So this, this whole book ending with this confrontation of God's enemies and God's king. And they're saying he's going down and he's not going to get up. Now pay attention to verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted. This is the king talking. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It's Judas Iscariot. This psalm is referenced of his betrayal. But you, O Lord, verse 10, be gracious to me. Raise me up. They're going to think it at the cross, they've killed me, and that I'm going to stay down, but I'm asking you to raise me up, that I might repay them, that I might be on my throne and judge the nations with justice. And by this I know that you delight in me. That the sacrifice was sufficient. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity. That's not David's integrity. That's another king. And you've set me in your presence forever. At the right hand of God on high. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. From everlasting to everlasting Amen and Amen. So we find this book's conclusion of, of David realizing he, he does not fulfill this bill for God's king. It takes someone who's going to ultimately fulfill God's will. And we see this will fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And at his betrayal that we see in, ver- in chapter 41... He's betrayed by Judas. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does he pray? Take this cup from me, Lord. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And he's fulfilling God's purposes for redemption. He is fulfilling God's will on our behalf because there is not a man who can stand in this place. We need Yahweh himself to stand in our place. And so David realizes here that he not only needs rescue from his enemies, he needs rescue from himself. And we as God's people need a king who can stand on the throne and who can judge justly and who can rescue God's people because as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. And this is why the Hebrew writer picks up this psalm in Hebrews 10. 
says, when Christ came into the world, this is verse 5 of Hebrews 10, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you've not taken pleasure. But then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. And he goes on to articulate. This is, this is God's Spirit inspiring writing, giving us insight on this psalm. And he, this is what he says. When he above says, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. They're offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily in his service offering repeated sacrifices that can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time where his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times, listen to this, those who are being Sanctified. This king that did God's will came and perfected his people for all time who are being sanctified. And this is why the Holy Spirit says and bears witness saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write it on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And this is why David comes with this confidence at the end of his failure and says, God, I know you'll deliver. Because it's not me that's going to bring your people to their end. It's you, Yahweh. You will sit on your throne. And you will do it through the son that you love. You will do it through your perfect son. And when you do, there are no enemies either in our innocence or in our guilt that will, that will thwart your plan. You will carry us home. You will establish your kingdom. And He wants this to, to, to wash over His people and as God's people today who see Jesus fresh and new. God wants to deliver us. He wants to pull us out of places of mire and clay. If there's innocent suffering. He wants you to hold on in prayer and in faith. And if there's guilt, He doesn't walk you, want you walking in condemnation. He wants to deliver you and rescue you. And He wants to put a song in your heart and a testimony for the congregation and an ongoing confidence that He's with you. That He'll be your joy in the midst of a difficult journey. That He'll be your praise in the midst of pain. That He'll give you hope when there's only uncertainty, healing when you're hurt, salve for a soul full of wounds, comfort while grieving loss, peace in the midst of conflict, rest when chaos abounds. As we sang, an anchor when the storms rage. Your eternal and ultimate provision that can... Enable you to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. He will 
deliver us from evil. And he holds his word out to remind us of this fresh and new each day. So if if you're in a place where you're more aware of your sin than Christ is your Savior, I believe God would want you to, to come to these passages with renewed hope. Hebrews 10, 19. In light of all these things, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. You've been studying Exodus. That's a holy place. You can't go. He's saying you've got confidence to walk in that room because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. It's a new and living way. Through His flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. He's the king who will deliver us. He's the one who has promised and his word is sure and steadfast and true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the way it reminds us of our need, the way it reminds us of your provision. We thank you for your spirit who continually brings conviction to our lives, reminding us um, that your words are for our good and for our life and for our safety. And constantly inviting us back to a path of obedience. But reminding us through the cross that it's not our obedience that that puts us in a good place with you. It's the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so even in the midst of seasons where we fall or fail. Or find ourselves tempted in, in many and diverse ways. May we look to Jesus. And Lord, as we do, as we see His face, would You transform us from one degree of glory to another? Would You put a new song in our hearts? And would You give us confidence and boldness to tell of Your faithfulness on our behalf? We thank You for Your great King who delivers us from evil. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.